Well, good morning, friends and family. As Larry already said, welcome. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Pastor Jameson. Um, I was going to say I'm one of the pastors, but that's indicative of the title pastor, so we're not really on a, a good roll here. But seriously, uh, welcome. I am very hot in my microphone. All right, we're good now. But welcome. I'm excited to be here to fellowship with you all, to worship with the saints. As we were singing, one line just really, really hit me that I just really wanted to, to, to think about and meditate on before I start preaching is this. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's why we come on Sundays. That's why we sing. That's why we fellowship with one another throughout the week. That's why we tell people about Jesus, because he and him alone is our boast. Amen? Amen. That's why we come. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series we have titled Walking with the Word, and we're walking through uh, the Gospel of John. We're currently in the fifth chapter, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there with me. Today, we're going to work through uh, verses 30 through 40. So John 5, verses 30 through 40, and I'll just go ahead and, and read the text for us this morning. It says this, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus speaking. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. This is the word of God. A recent study uh, by the Sloan Institute of Management of, of various social media platforms concluded after much study, that falsehood actually travels faster than truth. Did you know that? Falsehood travels faster than truth. Their studies show that it took the truth about six times as long as falsehood to reach about 1,500 people. That lies travel six times faster than truth do. They believe that one of the reasons lies often gain better traction than truth is because the truth gets old. The truth gets stale. People simply get tired of hearing the same truth over and over and over again. Truth is consistent and doesn't change while lies are novel. They're new. They offer us something new to think about. And at times they can actually confirm internal ideas that we have about ourselves or about our world that might be contrary to truth. Let me let you in on some lies that I believe about myself. The first one is this, that I am a clean person, okay? The reason I know I'm not a clean person is because I am married. 
And the sheer amount of dishes that I do not clean, underwear I leave on the floor, and my wife's personal testimony will absolutely refute the fact that I am a clean person. When she met me, I was an absolute slob, and I am slightly better. But I often tell myself that I am a clean person. Secondly, I often tell myself that I'm a fit person. I try to hit the gym at least two to three times a week. But the sheer amount of sugar that I pack into my body when I am not working out is astounding. Like 8, like 8 a.m. Jameson is like a health guru. He will tell you exactly what you need to do and exactly what you need to eat. But 10 p.m. Jameson just wants pizza rolls and Diet Dr. Pepper on hand until I fall asleep. Another lie that I believe about myself is this. I believe that I am an unloved person. Despite having a wife who absolutely showers me with praise, who adores me when I don't deserve it, a church that supports me and supports Dan. I have close friends to confide in who carry my burdens along with me. I often believe the lie that I am unlovable or that nobody loves me, despite the evidence to the contrary, despite being proven wrong time and time again, I still believe the lie. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you accept lies about yourself and, and lies about the world, even though there's mounting evidence that points in the other direction. Humans tend to listen to what jives with what we already feel on the inside. Or if we maybe don't like what we feel on the inside, we will listen to something that makes us feel something new. The author, Mark Twain, famously said this. He said, a lie can race around the world and back while the truth is still lacing up its bootstraps. Lies travel faster than truth. It would seem that falsehood and truth are sort of this proverbial tortoise in the hair with lies launching out of the starting gate faster than truth, but the truth trailing behind and hopefully eventually catching up. But the good news for the world and the good news for the people of God is that there is a truth that stands above all the worldly confusion and clamor and speculation. It's the truth that for over 2,000 years has anchored all of Christian thought. It's a, it's a truth that for over 2,000 years has been sculpting the very history and destination of our world. It's the bedrock of Christian doctrine and belief. Without this truth, the church loses its future hope. Without this truth, the, the gospel loses its effectiveness. Without this truth, humanity is utterly lost. And the truth is simply this. Jesus Christ is God. That's the truth. Ancient, simple, but true. And Lord willing, that I'll, I'll confidently proclaim that until the day that I die. But it's not enough for me to simply say it to you. I have to show it to you. So today, as we work through this text, let's try and answer this question. Why should I believe that Jesus is God? The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. He was a close friend of Jesus. He was a devoted follower of Christ. He was often called the beloved of Christ. 
And John, as he wrote this gospel, wanted everyone to know about the miraculous person that Jesus was. And he did this by showing the miraculous things that Jesus could do. In chapter 5, John showed us at the beginning of the chapter how Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He was an invalid, he could not walk, he had been there for 38 years, and Jesus simply spoke the words of power into his life, and the man got up and walked. Jesus healed him simply with the power of his words. But the problem was he did this on the Sabbath. It was the day of rest. It was the day when all of God's people were supposed to cease from their work, and this attracted the ire and the anger of a group called the Pharisees. These Pharisees were men who were devoted more to keeping the letter of God's law than actually loving the God of the law. And they came to Jesus and they charged him with working on the Sabbath. They said, you have committed a crime against God's law. And that crime brought with it the penalty of death. As Jesus began to speak to them and he started to lay out his rebuttal and show them his authority, he began to say things like, I, I am the son of God. I am the son of man. And so they then charged him with blasphemy, making himself equal with God. And they hatched a plan to take Jesus' life. These men did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one, the God-man, but Jesus wanted to show them and us that he is, in fact, God in flesh and blood. And Jesus does so first by quoting an Old Testament law that all of God's people would have agreed upon. And it's this. It's Deuteronomy 19.15. It says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses... Or three witnesses shall a charge be established. I think maybe our modern judicial system might be able to learn a little thing from God's word. But the law established that truth must be founded upon evidence. Truth is not truth. There's not evidence to the truth. It's said that no one person can be charged with anything unless there are at least two witnesses, which we understand does not necessarily mean two people, but two pieces of evidence that can be brought to the table to validify what's been done. And as Jesus shows these Pharisees exactly who he is, he goes further than the letter of the law. He does not offer simply, that's a beautiful sound. I saw everybody <laughs> smile and that's great. All right. But he offers not just two pieces of evidence, but he offers four pieces of evidence. Here's what he says. His first piece of evidence is this. His first witness is that of John the Baptist. Let's read verses 32 through 35 again. It says this. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John the Baptist was often called the forerunner or the herald of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And he was the last of the prophets, the final prophet before the great prophet who was Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees had heard John's testimony on multiple occasions, and yet they'd rejected the truth that John was speaking. 
But Jesus shows us that they had not always rejected this testimony. At one point, early in John's ministry, the Pharisees had sent to John, either they sent a letter or asked him to reply, or they went to him, but someone went to him and asked him what he believed. What was his testimony? And John the Baptist had confidently told them that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the God-man, was on his way. And the Pharisees, being, I don't want to say great students, well-studied, let's say that, in, in, in God's law, in God's word, they knew enough that God's people should be expecting this Messiah to come on the scene, but they just didn't know when. And when they heard that the Messiah was on his way, Jesus says that they rejoiced at this truth. They loved the testimony that the Messiah, the liberator of the Jews, the person who would eventually redeem and reconcile all of the nations unto God was on his way. They were excited for the dawning of this new age. But when Jesus comes on the scene and John begins to point to Jesus as this Messiah, the Pharisees no longer liked the news that the Messiah was on his way. You see, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. They believed that their Messiah would be this reigning and conquering king who would come in power and who would ultimately free them from Roman shackles. He would topple the Roman Empire and he would establish this new Jerusalem, this new nation of the Jews that would reign in power. But instead of Jesus toppling Roman infrastructure, he toppled money tables in the temple. He toppled the thinking of the Pharisees. He came and he exposed these men as hypocrites. See, John had always been preaching that the Messiah was coming and John's message didn't change. That truth did not change, but Jesus was not the Messiah that these Pharisees wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would look out at the world and expose the darkness out there, who would change things out there, but they did not want a Messiah who would come and force them to look inwardly and expose the darkness within them. And we too as the church can fall into the trap of expecting a Jesus to expose the hypocrites out there, to expose all the people who think differently than us, to expose all the people who believe differently than us. We can often expect a Jesus who is against the world. But we know that Jesus is for the world. And as we sang just a moment ago, he is for me, not against me. We must accept this Jesus that exposes the hypocrisy within, that exposes the lies within. But often when he does so, we can be uncomfortable. And just like the Pharisees, we can reject his word of truth. We can reject testimony about him. Jesus calls John the Baptist a burning and shining lamp, and he calls him this for good reason. How many of you like camping? Got any campers in here? Okay. Anybody go jogging in the woods? Yeah? Have you ever been lost in the woods at night? And nobody? Yeah, someone back there is laughing, yeah. Being lost in the woods at night is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. If you haven't, I want you to picture this, okay? Those of you who've been there, 
You're with me, everyone else. Let's strap on our imagination hats, okay? I want you to picture yourself, right? You're lost in a dark forest. You're stumbling over tangled underbrush. You're being pelted by tree branches that you can't really even see. As you're walking, you're hearing creatures milling about that are all but invisible to you, and you're, you're not really sure what your next step is going to be, whether it's going to be into a tree or off a cliff. It's terrifying. Now, in that state of mind, I want you to think, how excited would you be if you were walking and off in the distance you saw a light in the forest? What would that do for you? How excited, how hopeful would you be to see a light off in the distance. You'd rejoice. All of us would rejoice. You'd be so thankful. And you'd likely sprint as fast as you could towards that light, ultimately because that light would illuminate the person who was holding it, the person who could offer you help. That light would expose your Savior, You see, a lamp can guide our feet, and they certainly do that. They can direct us where we should go. But the light of a lamp is not the point. The light of the lamp is not a destination. Lamps and lanterns exist to illuminate something else. No one goes to light for light. They go to light for something else. Whether it's a person to save them, the ability to see, hope and purpose Lanterns illuminate something greater, and this is exactly what John the Baptist did. By testifying that Jesus was the Son of God, he helped all those in Israel who were lost in the darkness of their sins to find salvation by pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, revealing revealing him as their Savior. When he confidently said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John did. This is how he was a light unto the world. But the Pharisees rejected this light. Why? Why would those in darkness reject a light? Why would they reject a light that had such promise to save them? And the answer is simply this. The Pharisees did not know that they were in darkness. The Pharisees did not know that they were in darkness. These men were the spiritual leaders of God's people. They were the teachers and the professors and the governors, and yet they did not realize that John had a revelation that allowed him to see in the dark, and they could not. Two times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls them blind guides. In Matthew 15, 14, he says this, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. And in Matthew 23, 24, he says, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These men were so blind to the things of God that they made issues like someone not picking up their mat on the Sabbath or someone not cleaning out the inside of their cup or how long your beard was or whether or not you had tassels on your hair. More important than seeking things like justice and mercy and love and helping your neighbor and honoring God. He said you would strain out a gnat, but you would gladly swallow a camel. 
They were blind to the things of God. And they were ultimately blind to their Savior, even though Jesus stood right before them. And the Bible tells us that we too, in our natural state, without God, are blind to who Jesus is. We cannot see until God opens our eyes to the truth. And he does this through his word and by a witness Something or someone that testifies gives evidence to the truth. And John the Baptist was Jesus' first witness. But Jesus calls another witness to the stand. It's the second one. And they are the works of Jesus. Read verse 36 with me. It says this. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' miraculous works testify that he can be none other than the Son of God, the Messiah, the God-man. When Jesus walked the earth, he did many miraculous deeds. As a matter of fact, the New Testament um, chronicles for us at least 35 separate miracles done specifically by Jesus. However, in John's gospel, which we're in, it records only seven. These are the seven miracles in the book of John. The turning of water into wine at Cana. The cleansing of the temple. Healing the official son. Healing the invalid at Bethesda. Opening the eyes of the blind. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And a miraculous overflowing catch of fish. Other notable miracles of Jesus were the feeding of 5,000 people, which was actually more like 10,000 people. The Bible tells us it was 5,000 men, but that was not including women and children. The Bible tells us that Jesus cast out numerous demons from the possessed. He had power even over the powers of hell. It shows us that he cleansed the leprous, that he could eradicate disease. He was even Lord over all creation. As he walked on water and calmed the waves of seas. The prophet Isaiah had much to say about the works that the Messiah would do when he came to his people. He said these things. He said that the blind would see. In Isaiah 29, 18, he said this. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus does, in fact, heal numerous blind people. Isaiah said that the deaf would hear. He said, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus causes the deaf to hear on numerous occasions. He spoke of a time when the lame would walk. He said, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. We've seen in this chapter Jesus miraculously heal a man who had almost never walked. And lastly, Isaiah says, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. In numerous occasions, Jesus caused those without the ability to speak to actually speak. It's interesting that the Pharisees saw these miraculous works of Jesus and yet did not believe. But the crowds who followed Jesus, the people whom the Pharisees were charged with leading and instructing and teaching, when they saw what Jesus could do, they responded this way. They said, when the Christ or Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? When they looked at Jesus, they said, are these not the signs that the Old Testament told us would happen? Are these things not more miraculous than anything we've ever seen? 
If the Messiah is not this man, if the Messiah is coming, what more could he do? What more miraculous works? How else could he show that he has power over creation, life, and death, disease, weather? What more could this man do? And the text tells us that many believed. I'm wondering if anyone here has ever heard of the duck test. Those of you who are Monty Python fans are probably smiling a little bit. The duck test states simply that something can be identified by observing its traits and its habits. It can be identified by observing its traits and its habits. It's often quoted as this. If it looks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. (laughs) It's the duck test. Larry, would you raise your hand for me? That's Larry. Everyone say, hi, Larry. (laughs) He's like, I called him out of nowhere. Now imagine coming to Conversion Church week in and week out, seeing Larry sing songs about God, play his guitar, play the piano, worship the Lord, and then going up to Larry and going, Larry, are you a musician? Are you serious? Fred, raise your hand for me. (laughs) Everyone say hi, Fred. (laughs) Now imagine, Fred works for Apple, by the way. Now imagine, Fred shows up to the church, and he's not going to do this. No one get their hopes up, okay? Imagine Fred shows up, right? And he hands out new iPads to everyone in the church, right? (laughs) Now listen, listen. There's only two conclusions there, right? Either Fred works for Apple or he's an egregious thief and a very good one at that. But the duck test is simple. We look at what something does. We look at its traits. We look at its ability to do things and we make judgments based on that. If you looked at Larry, you would see that he's a musician. If you watched Fred, you'd believe he worked for Apple. And so the works of Jesus should have convinced the Pharisees that he was the Messiah because he was doing everything that the Messiah could do. He was doing everything that the Messiah was said to do. Yet these men remained unconvinced. And some of you, I'm sure, remain somewhat skeptical about Jesus. But my friends, listen. If it walks like the Messiah and it talks like the Messiah and it does the works of the Messiah. Can we not simply believe that Jesus may be the Messiah? He may be the God-man. And as if two witnesses, two testimonies were not enough, Jesus brings a third to the stand. He brings another witness to bear, another evidence that he is, in fact, the divine Son of God. And it's the words of Scripture. Verse 39 says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees were diligent students of the Old Testament. Which they would ultimately refer to as the law and prophets. The law is known as the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the prophets were the recorded words of various witnesses 
Various prophets that God had sent to God's people, men whom God spoke through. They were messengers of his truth. They were agents of his personal revelation to people. And these men prophesied about what the Messiah would be like in these specific events that would take place in the Messiah's life and ministry. And did you know, I don't have time to go through all of them, but did you know that conservatively, conservatively, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies of what the Messiah would be like. 300. From how he would be born, to where he would be born, to the types of miracles he would do, even up to the days leading to the cross, how he would die, how he would rise. All of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills nearly every single one of them. And while the Pharisees were diligent students of Scripture, they missed these things. They missed the Messiah. They also missed these two major themes of Scripture. Again, these men read the Bible, which would have at that time been the Old Testament. They read it simply as a practical manual, a way to be good, how to obey, a list of rules, do's and don'ts, but they didn't read it for its intended purposes. They didn't read it for the dual purpose that God preserves Scripture for us. Scripture has really only two main themes, and the first is this. Mankind is hopelessly lost in their sin. That's the first theme, that we are rebellious against God, and ultimately we're unable to save ourselves. In Genesis 3, we see our first parents in Adam and Eve. They disobey God. They go against his rules. God punishes them. He places a curse on all humanity. And all people were plunged into sin from that point. And that sin we inherit from Adam. Just like many of you look like your mothers and fathers. We inherit that nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this nature, this sin nature, it separates us from God and it ultimately subjects us to eternity and condemnation. But the Pharisees didn't believe this. They believed that because of their ethnicity as Jews, because of their adherence to the law, they would be saved. They thought that they, because they were sons of Abraham or other heroes of the faith that God would forgive them. And that all they needed to do from this point on was simply obey God's law and everything would be fine. But I ask you, for those of you who, who know scripture, how does scripture portray the heroes of the faith? How does scripture portray them? <laughs> Firstly, we have Noah, who had enough faith to build the ark, to find shelter with his family therein. And be saved. What does it say about Noah after he came out of the ark? It says that he planted a vineyard. He got ridiculously drunk. And he fell down naked in front of his sons. Imagine being recorded like that in scripture. <laughs> I don't even want that on my Facebook. <laughs> but not even just Noah. What about Abraham? Who's often called the father of our faith who despite his apparent faith, lacked enough faith in God to actually believe God's promises and wait for a son. Instead, he had a son with a slave woman who was not his wife. Not only this, but on multiple occasions, he lied about being married to his own wife because he feared for his life. What about his grandson, 
Jacob, who was an heir of the promise. Jacob lied to his father, colluded with his mother, stole the birthright of his older brother Esau, and covered up his identity. Jacob's name means supplanter, or usurper, or schemer. And how could we forget about David? David, who recorded in Scripture, is recorded as a man after God's own heart. And yet, when David's heart was tempted to give him something he did not own, he slept with another man's wife. And so that no one would find out, he had her husband murdered. These are the heroes of your faith. These are the men that the Pharisees were believing that this lineage, this ethnicity could save them. But no, my friends, these men all show that they are still hopelessly sons of Adam. They are all sons of Adam. But the second theme of the Old Testament is this, and this is the good news, that despite being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, Despite our sins, God promises to send us a savior. Did you know directly following man's fall into sin, in Genesis 3, God promises to send a savior who would crush the head of Satan and who would lift humanity out of their sins, out of their rebellion against God. And every single page of the Bible is telling this story. Did you know that? From cover to cover, the Bible is about Jesus Scripture testifies that there is one who is coming to save us. In the New Testament, it testifies that there's one who has already come to save us. These Pharisees believed that they could be saved by knowledge, by lineage, or adherence to the Scriptures. But Jesus is very clear. You look to the Scriptures because you believe in them, they have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is clear. The only way to have eternal life is by coming and running and trusting in him. There is no other way. You may have grown up in church. Some of you probably know God's word much better than I do. As a matter of fact, I know some of you do. You may have books of the Bible memorized in your head. You may follow the laws of Scripture to the absolute T. But the reality is, no matter what your works are, no matter how good of a person you are, no matter what your lineage is, whether or not you've been in church for 30 years or 30 minutes, the only way to be saved is by abandoning the belief that we can be saved by anything else and running and casting our hope on the mercy and grace of Jesus as our personal Messiah. We sang this morning, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That is all that can save. There is nothing else. It is this Jesus, this Messiah, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross brutally as a substitute in your place to forgive your personal sins and reunite you 
with God, who is your Father. This is what he's done, and it's a glorious and miraculous thing, but Jesus is not done bringing witnesses to the stand. He has one more, and it's the greatest witness in this text, the greatest witness that, that Jesus could ever bring, and it is God the Father, God himself. He says this in verse 37. He said, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is clear that God the Father has testified about him, that God the Father has sent him. Yet Jesus says that God's voice remains unheard and his face remains unseen. That's interesting, isn't it? How is it then that Jesus can claim that the Father has been a witness if no one's ever seen him and no one's ever heard him? How is it? that he can charge these Pharisees with not trusting the Father's testimony when they've never seen him and they've never heard him. How is it that we can know what the Father God wants of us if we cannot hear him or see him? It's very simple. The only way to know God the Father and his desires is if God chooses to reveal himself to you. So God chooses to reveal himself to us. God has always chosen to reveal himself to mankind in three ways. First, through his messengers. Secondly, through his works, the miraculous things he does. And lastly, through his word, his testified scriptures about him. And it's interesting, who does Jesus bring to the stand? He brings John the Baptist, a messenger prophet to testify about him. His second piece of evidence are his miraculous works. Everything he's done that is contrary to the natural but seems supernatural to his hearers. And third, he brings scripture. He brings the words of God. The messengers, the works, the words. All of these things bring witness to his deity. In the very same way that God has always revealed himself to mankind, Jesus reveals himself to the Pharisees. And it's the same way that Jesus reveals himself to us. I asked this morning, I started this question, why should I believe Jesus is God? And the answer is this, because the prophets, Jesus' works, the scriptures, and the Father tell us he is God. Four stable pieces of evidence that point to the truth. But just like the Pharisees who were blind, the only way to know God is by him revealing himself to us. And if you're here today, I just want you to know you're not here by coincidence. But an invisible hand of God has drawn you to this place. He has drawn you here to see the evidence. He's drawn you here to rejoice in the truth. He's drawn you here so that he could reveal himself to you that you would hear about his life-giving power, that you would hear about his love, that you would hear about his mercy towards sinners, that you'd hear about his plan for redemption and ultimately your need for salvation. You're here because God wants to show you that you need Jesus. And that doesn't matter if you have not placed your faith in Jesus or you already have. We are here because we need Jesus. Amen? Amen. So if you don't know God, and yet you want to know God. Not to simply follow a set of rules 
but come into a literal relationship with the ruler of the world, the author of creation, the Father God. The Bible tells you this, that you must accept the testimony about his son, Jesus. You cannot come to the Father unless you first come to the feet of Christ. You must accept the fact that you need to be forgiven of your sins. And trust me, everyone in this room needs that. Everyone across the face of the earth needs that. Every man, woman, and child. You must believe that only God himself could send a substitute for you. That only God himself could accomplish your redemption. And you must cast yourself on his mercy and grace and receive eternal life. The Bible tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus, we are saved. So many world religions expect you to come and do things, to look at the list of do's and don'ts and to live up to the expectation. But Christianity says this, I could never, even in my best efforts, on my best day, the best millisecond of the best day of my life, I could not do what God requires of me. And so God in his grace says this, Jameson, what you must do is trust in my son. Place your faith in him, not in yourself. Stand on his righteousness, not on your own. Believe in him, not in your power and your ability. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity is we are saved by faith, by grace. And in that we are saved. To the church, those of you who love the gospel, who listen to us preach about it every week, God's beloved people, his adopted children. He calls you the apple of his eye. Do you know that? He calls you the apple of his eye. He calls you a precious inheritance. To you, Jesus speaks these words out of Matthew 5. He says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. One of the best jobs I ever had in my life is when I worked in early childhood education. I worked at a daycare. It was a church daycare. And every week we would have chapel. And one of the most amazing things was sitting there with these children and we sing a very simple song. It went like this. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That is the truth of what God has called us to. He has called us to be a light in the darkness for those who do not see and cannot see. He's called us to be witnesses, to gladly take the stand and say no. I know the way. I know the truth. There is evidence. Jesus Christ is God, and he can be your Savior. We are called to be bright lights, to be lamps like John the Baptist, to tell people about God's love and power and compassion and, and his saving mercy. We're called to this. We are called. And yet I understand that many of us, myself included, often lack that light. We lack that power. We lack that unction. We lack that boldness to tell someone about Jesus. And that is why we must also pray, church. And so if you're, you're part of Convergent Church and you've been coming here for a while and you're like, man, I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to be on the mission. I want to have gospel conversations, but I don't know how to. I want you to start here. I just want you to pray. Because here's the reality. 
Lamps have to be lit. They have to be lit. And that's a spark that only the Holy Spirit can lighten us. So I pray that you would pray to God and ask the Holy Spirit to give you boldness to raise your lamp high and that you would shout to all of those in the city of Owasso, just like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so my question for you, church, is this. Will you pray? Will you pray? Will you ask God to make you a burning and shining lamp like John the Baptist who led countless hundreds, if not thousands towards Jesus that they might believe. The other part of that song that we sang was this, the second verse. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus says lights are not meant to be hidden. He says nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, puts it under a basket so that those cannot see. So the question is, will you tell people about Jesus? Will you pray for that boldness? Or will you hide that light that Jesus says gives glory to your Father in heaven? Because my friends, here's the truth as we wrap up. The truth is, eventually, all of the truth will catch up to all the lies. The full truth of who Jesus is will catch up to all the lies about our world and all the lies about him. All people will see one day that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, and he will ultimately reign forever when he returns. And if they don't see that now, they'll see it on the last day. That's what our Bible tells us. All will see the truth. It just might take some time, but God has given us today. God has given us tomorrow. God has given us this coming week as precious time that we can tell people to look towards the light, run out of the darkness, run to your Savior, and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, we love you. Jesus, we're so thankful that you're God. We're so thankful. We're thankful that you came in the form of man to show us that you are like us and that you empathize with us. That you came in the form of man so that you might stand in our place. But Lord, we thank you that you are God because you are holy. You are God and that makes you perfect. So Lord, we know that only you could stand in our place. There's no one like you, God. There's no one like you, Jesus, and we're so thankful for you. Lord, I pray that you would help the people of Convergent Church to come to you and humbly submit our lives and pray, Lord, that you would light a fire in our hearts. Lord, that you would place a groaning in our bellies for those who do not know you. Lord, that you would put a confidence deep within us that knows that you are the only way and that you are the truth that stands above all other truths. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into a place of full surrender that would simply say, Lord, I'm ready to go. Lord, I'm ready to speak. Lord, I'm ready to do. Lord, I want my words and my actions to testify of you just like John the Baptist. Lord, I want to be a witness to your saving power and your glorious life. And Lord, help us. Lord, even as we pray, give us the words to speak. 
And Lord, set us on mission for your glory. You've told us that the harvest is ready, but that the workers are few. Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would put us to work. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.